You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there. The hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Palm Media and harness your creative side. Maybe even earn enough money. Enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher. I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to our Iditarod 2023 coverage here on Mushing Radio on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site. You can find all of our episodes over on firstpaw.media. Make sure you follow us online by searching for Mushing Radio or First Paw Media. And wherever you listen to this podcast, make sure you hit that subscribe button and you will never miss an episode. Tonight, I am joined by two co-hosts, Tony calling in from downtown Anchorage. She is ready for the ceremonial start tomorrow. And Michelle, who is sitting beside me right here in the world headquarters, headquarters of our podcast <laughs> empire. Michelle, how's it going tonight? It's going great, Robert. And Tony, how's it going tonight? Uh, I am, I'm doing well. I, I was stressed, uh, all this last week, but now that we're fully in Iditarod weekend mode, I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, we are well here. And for our fans that are listening, we sent out last night that Tony and I were going to get together today, uh, <laughs> down at the Iditarod headquarters at the lakefront or the millennium or whatever it's called. And I drove... <laughs> Dang near, what, 250 miles or so to, <laughs> to do this little meeting with Tony. But it was good to see you. It was good to finally meet you after all yeah. of these years. We got a chance to chat about um, our podcast. We met a couple of friends down there uh, that are uh, part of Iditarod. Iditarod is in the air, isn't it? It is. It's uh, the community is alive and well. We've been talking about some of the more uh, ominous things about the race over the course of the season and off season. But it, it hit me today that you know it's still Iditarod, where the community is still strong, or as Rob Erbach likes to call it, Iditarod Nation. Though I don't think we've embraced that quite as much as he had hoped. Um, but you know, it, it just feels like it. I ran into Dan Seavey down in the, the lobby of my hotel just a few minutes ago. And, and that's when it really struck, you know, as, as much as this race has changed, especially this year, uh, the more things stay the same, we're all still wild and crazy about the race and about the dogs and the people that run them. So Tony, it has been probably a decade since I've been down to the lakefront or the millennium <laughs> as it used to be called. And when I was there, it was packed to the gills. You know, there's people running around everywhere. You know, everybody was sort of uh, in Iditarod mode. There were some star, uh, starstruck fans 
Uh, there were people <laughs> down there that were way overdressed for uh, a 20 degree day in Anchorage. But today it seemed a lot less crowded than it has in the past. So what do you think is the pulse of Iditarod, at least from your vantage point of where you've been around town today? Well, this is not me like trying to watch rose-colored glasses. It was hilarious because when you came in, I was like, you just missed a big wave of activity. We had groups of tourists. We had groups of volunteers all sitting where I was sitting. Mark Nordeman was doing a little meet and greet with a bunch of tour people. Um, and then you got there and it was like dead quiet, mostly in the lobby. There were teacher conferences going upstairs, but we really didn't see a whole lot of action. You left, and I kid you not, within five minutes, all of that activity came back. So I don't know if you were, like, uh, given off a Moses vibe where you were part of the Red Sea or something, but it was it was really funny just how busy it got. Rob Erbach was then downstairs. Chad St. George was downstairs. And for those of you who don't know the ins and outs, those are the guys behind the scenes that kind of run the show, CEO, the COO. Um, Mark Norman, of course, is the race marshal. So, you know, there were a lot of that. We saw, I saw Dean Osmar was there. Um, Matt Peterson was there. Just a lot of activity was going on. Just not while we were hanging out. I guess we just, I guess they all knew that we just needed to have that little bit of time to chat and, and get uh, our bearings for this week. Well, I, I would like to say it was like Entourage on, on HBO or something. I sort of arrived at the optimal time. But yeah, it was it was interesting to see how that uh, is a little bit different than a decade ago. And I'm sure that will be a a one of our top stories that we're going to talk about throughout this Iditarod, how it's changed a little bit. But let's jump over to the banquet. Uh, the banquet was held last night, and I understand it was quite a bit different. And you had... A friend of yours or a colleague, a volunteer colleague, if you will, come up and uh, mm -hmm. tell you a little bit about the banquet. Neither you or I or Michelle had the pleasure of attending last night. But what's the status of the banquet? And uh, maybe give us a, a recap. You know, I was chatting not only with um, Rebecca, who was there when you were there, but um, one of our Patreon members, she found us uh, right after you left, actually. She uh, came up, Wendy came up, and she was also at the banquet. And it was interesting to hear her take on the banquet versus Rebecca's take, because Rebecca was actually working the banquet, and I believe Wendy was attending it. And um, and so Rebecca, you know, pointed out a lot of the, the different things that happened. We both noted that, you know, they drew out of a hat this year instead of the traditional muckluck. Um, and there was no rhyme or reason. There was no reason given for why the change on that. Um, and they also, instead of doing where the musher comes up, draws their number, tell, you know, announces the number, and then thanks their sponsors, their family, and says whatever little funny quip they want to say. Instead, they had an introduction video before the musher came up. They draw out of the hat and then... Um, I believe it was Mr. Stroh, who was the MC. He, he read off the number to the crowd. Um, but it was well attended. Uh, everything that I've seen, everything that I've heard was very positive. It was one of the more positive reactions to the Musher Banquet that I've seen in a while. So I don't know if it was necessarily the new structure of how they were doing it, where it was truncated. It was also only a couple hours instead of a full night because there's only 33 teams running. 
so it was a little bit shorter in that way. Um, but for the most part, everyone that I've talked to today about last night's banquet has been very, very positive. They really enjoyed it. There was a very emotional tribute to the mushers that have decided to retire, Martin Boozer and Jeff King in particular, both of whom were in attendance. They also mentioned the returning champions to the race, Brent Sass and Pete Kaiser. Um, there were a few other champions who are not running this year's race, but who were in attendance that also got an acknowledgement from those on stage. So that, I think, is something that we haven't seen in the past that was really quite special. They, they presented a little plaque for, for the mushers that have retired, is my understanding. So that was special. And then they did a tribute to their honorary musher this year, who is Lance Mackey, and it was quite emotional. Uh, Rebecca said that she she was able to keep her emotions in check, but she knows that quite a few people in attendance were crying. I, I saw that from fans that were watching online. They were also very emotional. I did not get to watch because I have very poor internet at my hotel, so I'm I'm feeling FOMO to the extreme. But uh, it, it sounds like overall this was one of the better banquets. Normally we make jokes about the banquets, those of us who have been around a long enough time where it's just so long and just I don't go because it's just too long. But it sounds like this was the perfect length, the perfect tone. Um, I think this is going to be one of the parts of Iditarod that people don't have a lot of bad things to say about it. Other than where the heck was the muckluck? That's the only negative that I've heard so far. And what's the deal with the video um, uh, talks or whatever, instead of allowing the, the mushers to come up and say something? Do you think that's a new thing or is there a reason for it? Do you know? You know, I wonder, as I've been sitting there contemplating uh, after talking with some of the folks that were there, um, I wonder if it's just a way to keep it short because you do have some very long-winded mushers. You also have mushers that are like, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm bib number 11, thank you, everybody, and they get off the stage. So I don't know if this is just a way to kind of bring in that connection because Greg Heister does such a good job of getting the mushers to talk to him and doing interviews um, for Insider. Um, when they're when they're fully awake and they're not sleep deprived and grumpy because of, they've been in the cold for a week, then the then the interviews get a little short. But I, I think that that might be one of the reasons, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing because they can kind of control the uh, the time and the length it takes to to get the the bibs all uh, chosen. Uh, did you get a chance to see any of those videos at all? Uh, like I said, I don't have very good internet, so I have not gotten to see anything from the banquet yet. I won't probably get to see it until I get home on Monday. So for folks that are listening that did attend the banquet, what do you think about the, the videos themselves? Were they professionally produced or was it somebody walking around with a shaky iPhone telling us who they were and what they're <laughs> all about? It would be interesting to hear those 
those comments from our mushers. So that's the banquet. As you mentioned, it ended, uh, I think, around 9 o'clock of what your friend had said. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty early one. I remember when I went to the couple that I went to, <laughs> boy, they, they went on and on and on. We were well done with dessert, and they were only halfway through the roster. Which brings up yep. the next thing, really. And before we talk about trail and tomorrow and all of that, uh, the elephant in the room has been talked about a lot over the last, I don't know, since the, since the people started signing up way back in June at the picnic. It's the size of the roster. And I know that that's a huge story in the local media and even some of the national media outlets have talked about what in the world's going on? We only have 30-odd people running compared to, you know, the height of the heyday where we had close to 100. What do you think about this small size? I would like to get your take on it first and then Michelle's. It's, it's complicated. You know, I, um, we every year for my little section of the Anchorage Trail, we, uh, my grandfather started this tradition back in, I think, the 80s, at least the 80s. Um, where the Anchorage Daily News, they always do a roster page of the Iditarod mushers. And from the time that I can remember and everything that we have, because we just plaster each year on top of the next, um, it's always been two pa- a two-page spread or, or a full page if, you know, you're just pulling it out of the, the newspaper. And this year, my dad pulled it out, and it's one half page of, of the newspaper and it was just that was a very startling picture for me you know it's one thing to see 33 names in total on a on a piece of paper it's another thing to see it in comparison this way um to past rosters i i don't know what to think you know we can i've i've argued that it's mainly the economy and then mitch cv blew that out of the water this past week when he wrote his little take on it if if you haven't read it yet find him on facebook it's it's well worth the read it's a very quick read um it's a lot of math and stats which is a cv strong point it's not my strong point but he made some really good arguments that I think are, are worth discussing at maybe a later date just because we do want to focus on this race and not necessarily uh, focus too much on stuff that's not happening right now. But it's, it's a combination of everything. I think that this needs to be a little bit of a wake-up call to the powers that be in the Iditarod. Not in a negative way. I think it's just it, it's the changing of the guard. It's a new era. Um, they need to start listening to the newer generation of mushers and what those mushers need from the race. I'm not necessarily saying give them a handout and, you know, everybody get a participation medal. But, you know, there, there are some general concerns that many mushers share, and they've shared them publicly, and they've, uh, it, it feels like they've, some of them have commented that they say it falls on deaf ears. And so I think that that's where we need to... Um, as a community, not just as the people in charge, they need to, um, you know, listen and take into consideration. But as far as this roster that we have, it's actually very strong. I, I think it's one of the strongest things that we have, that one of the strongest rosters that we've had in quite a while. Yeah, I agree. And when you only have 33, the the competition is is much more intense than if you mm-hmm. had you know, triple that number when, when we were running in the 90s 
literally and figuratively in or late 90s, early 2000s, when we had those huge mm -hmm. fields, we had a whole bunch of people that nobody knew anything about because there was just so many people running. Uh, and it was almost oversaturated, if you will, just people just sort of pouring in and running the race. And, and now we have a much more condensed version. And before I turn it over to Michelle, I agree with a lot of what you said about it's a combination of factors. It's economy, it's politics, it's new generations, it's changing of the guard. It could be weather and, and the ability to train. And there's all sorts of, of variables in there. And you can sort of pigeonhole it into one or have that sort of wide swath of, you know, just sort of that perfect storm of things that are coming together that that could cause this, or it just may be coming a, a much more condensed type race with, mm -hmm. with a much more condensed type of a competitive field. Michelle, what are your thoughts on the small size of the roster? I'd be curious to know if it correlates with races that have been going on uh, across Alaska, as well as in the lower 48, like the qualifiers. Have the qualifiers had smaller rosters? And if the qualifiers have had smaller rosters, then that could be indicative of the fact that not only the cost of having sled dogs is exorbitant right now because of the economy, but the ability to have a dog lot in urban sprawl is becoming mm -hmm. next to impossible. And I think that that is one of the catalysts. And then moving here to Alaska it's even getting difficult to have dog lots here in Alaska um, and maintain your job. You know, you've got to have an, a way to pay for all of these things. And, you know, and you factor in your family and, and all of those other factors. It really does come down to um, money. I mean, I know we got out of dogs for a little while, Robert, and that was because of our kids being in school and it just was not conducive with their education. And so we we took a step back for a little while. Um, and when we got back into it, we definitely did not rebuild our kennel in in Colorado or Minnesota. We moved up here. Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting topic to talk about, and it's not going to be something that we talk about throughout this coverage because we could literally probably dive into this every night. So I just want to turn it over to our fans that are listening. What do you think? Why do you think that the roster is only 33 names? And do you think it's much more competitive with a much smaller roster than even in the last couple of years? We'd be We'd be anxious to hear what you have to say. So let's turn well, it. Well, I'd like to add to that. I'd be interested to hear what the, <laughs> I would be interested to hear what the fans have to say about one third of the roster being rookies. Yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about that, especially when we jump into our predictions here in just a second. So tomorrow, uh, Tony, you're going to be down at, um, at the native medical center. That's your spot for your volunteer <laughs> Uh, position. You'll be doing that all morning and you'll see all the teams come by. And we're going to talk about the trail in a second. But of course, tomorrow is all about the ceremonial start. It's going to kick off at 10 a.m. Is that right? And then we're uh, yep. we're, we're going to do a, a ribbon cutting. And my understanding that it has something to do with our honorary musher, which is Lance Mackey. We heard a little bit of that uh, from your from the colleagues that we met down there today. What do you know about the ribbon cutting? And then we'll talk a little bit about how the ceremonial start uh, sort of lays out. 
so every year when they do the start, and I've actually never seen this because I'm always in my spot, but back in the day before I was in charge of things, my grandparents used to bring their motorhome down and we'd actually watch the opening ceremony of the ceremonial start. And they always have a ribbon cutting ceremony. It's normally the CEO, the president of the race. Um, so that would be this year, Rob Erbach and Mike Ellis. Um, and then they have like a celebrity or a Make-A-Wish kid. I, you know, Sarah Palin did it one year. I want to say Dorothy Hamill was here for one back when um, they announced that uh, the first Saturday in March was Susan going to be Susan Butcher Day from now on. Um, I think I think Ms. Hamill came up for that. And um, and this year it is going to be the Mackey family in honor of Lance. This truly is the, the 51st running of Iditarod is truly going to be in memory of Lance, I think, from start to finish, not only because Jason, of course, is running, his little brother is running the race, um, but the fact that, you know, he's very much a part of every moment of the ceremonial start. They will be his dad, and they're not even sure who all of the Mackey clan, because there's a, quite a few uh, if you can imagine, it's it's quite a large family. Um, they'll be downtown. They'll do the ceremonial cutting of the ribbon. And then it's my understanding that Lance's two youngest children, Adigan and Lozen, will be in the um, junior Iditarod champions sled. They're always the first one out of the gate. They also um, typically ride with the honorary musher, be it that family member or the 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 honor the honoree themselves in that sled basket and it sounds like it's going to be Lance's two youngest children who get that honor to to be there and represent their father who they lost to cancer just this past fall. So before that, as we speak right now, and we're recording about 7.30 on Friday night, they have closed off all the roads down in uh, that area of Anchorage, and they're going to be trucking in boatloads of snow, <laughs> dump truck fulls, and they'll lay out the course. And a lot of people don't know that. I remember Alex talking about that years ago, about how just fascinated he was to walk outside of his hotel room and watch, <laughs> literally watch the trail being set in downtown Anchorage. And I mentioned it today that I drove in to, to uh, meet with you and all the roads were, were, uh, were dry. You know, there was hardly any snow mm -hmm. on them whatsoever. And then all that will change overnight. And interestingly enough, they'll scoop all of that back up after the running of the reindeer, which is another event that happens after the ceremonial start. So the mushers will start arriving, I guess, uh, 7, 8 o'clock a.m., and they'll line up. I believe they line up in order of, is it last to first or is it first to last? Yep. Um, I believe that it is last to first. I think it's, um, I think it is. I'm not really sure how they're doing it this year, so... Um, cause it is smaller, so I'm not sure exactly if they're going to do it that way or not, but typically they, they do it in such a manner that they can clean up pretty quickly and keep closing off things. Um, Carl Heidelbach, uh, is a master at this now. He learned from some of the best and he's just continued on that he he's just he's not just a cog he keeps a well-oiled machine he'll be down there with his 
uh, motorhome. He stays there all night and he supervises the snow getting put down, the banner getting put up, the fencing getting put up. They mark where every um, truck is going to be, where they can, you know, and, and they're all in the side streets there on 4th Avenue. And my aunt used to work downtown at the courthouse and back in those, you know, big roster years, they were all the way down that far. So she got to just walk right out of her office and, and right there and, and watch the teams get ready. So it's, it's a huge, huge undertaking that starts from now and goes through the night to be ready for the teams to get there very early tomorrow morning. And depending on whether it is last or first, doesn't matter as much, but I remember right. being down there trying to help uh, get teams up to the <laughs> starting line. And I tell you what, I, I, all the fans that are lined up, it's, it's, it's like the Rose Bowl parade. It's literally lined uh, shoulder to shoulder most years. If you want to see some real antics going on. It is those uh, handlers or, or, or team helpers or whatever. I know that there are specially trained, quote unquote, people that do it now. But back in <laughs> back in the day, it, it could literally be anybody that would help take a team up. And I've seen so many people uh, fall down on that trek from the dog truck to the starting line. And what's interesting is most of them sort of fall down and just sort of roll off and the next person sort of just jumps in and fills fills the spot, and they work their way up. It's it's almost like uh, almost like a machine or a cog in the wheel, if you will, uh, trying to get those teams up because you are running on a city street with very slippery, unpacked snow that they have carted in from other places. So once the start starts, they'll do the countdown. They'll take off down 4th Avenue there every two minutes, starting with that first honorary musher all the way down to the to the last. And it's only going to take, what, an hour and six minutes? Is that right, if my math is correct? Uh, hour and eight, because you've got 34 teams 34. with the honorary musher. Okay, so, so 34. an hour and eight minutes, which is not very long. As they hit the trail downtown, they make a a hard right there on, I guess it's Cordova street. If, if my mm -hmm. streets are correct, there's usually a good spot right there to, to see people uh, really drive <laughs> their sled or potentially crash. I've seen that from time to time. And then they'll work their way through town and head over a pedestrian bridge. And that's about right where you are. Is that right? Uh, we're actually a bit further down. We're about mile, I believe they've told us we're mile seven of, of the run. So they'll run by the Sullivan Arena. They run through the Goose Lake area, and then they come around, swing over by University Lake um, area and into the Alaska Native Medical Center. Then they go over the walking bridge that goes over Tudor, um, and they head for Campbell Airstrip, and, and they'll take out at the BLM right there by Campbell Airstrip. And it's 12 miles, so these guys are not speed demons. They typically have that that drag sled or tag sled, whichever you want to call it, and that's almost always a, a handler or family member or whatever that's driving that. And the goal of that is to slow the team down because you're running on streets most of the time. You can't use a whole lot of brake, but you're definitely slowing them down. Then, as Tony said, you get to the Campbell Airstrip, they pack up, 
Uh, the Iditarider gets out. We didn't talk about the Iditarider, but we will very quickly. <laughs> Those folks are the ones that have paid an auction, if you will, to, to sit in that spot. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that is a bucket list item. That is something that they have wanted to do their whole lives and they've bid on it and they're with their favorite musher and those prices can command a pretty penny, if you will. So they will ride in that sled to the airstrip and then everybody will pack up and uh, go about their way. They'll go home and, and do their thing. But what's interesting about the whole thing is it is over so quickly. All this pomp and circumstance and circus atmosphere and, you know, the party atmosphere of going on. And it's, it is it is like a parade. Once they pass, it's sort of over, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, they, they start packing up Fourth Avenue, the dog trucks. Uh, as soon as their team leaves, the dog trucks are making their way to the BLM. Um, from the start line and then for us the trail guards that are along the trail you have to keep track and make sure that all 34 teams uh, in this case this year are down the trail and you got to make sure that there's no extra sled that Carl and Derek forgot to tell you about um, and then you get to pack up you know you take all the the markings the markers down that you have um, and all of the little signs that might be down make sure that the trash is is picked up and and then you're done for the year unless you're moving on to being a restart trail guard or doing the comms here in town or or whatever you know some even go out onto the trail after they trail guard here in anchorage so um yeah it's very very quick and it's all it, it's all this amazingly well orchestrated chaos um you know i i heard several volunteers in the lakefront they're like we have no idea we just know that we have to wait for, you know, someone to tell us this is where you need to be, be here by this time. We'll sign a piece of paper and we'll be on a plane to be somewhere. It, it all feels like I have no idea and I have no control. And then once you get into the machine and they've, you know, they spit you into where you go, it just becomes this robotic thing, even for your first time volunteers. And it's very, very dangerous to be a volunteer because you're going to get addicted very quickly. Um, I have a very hard time just doing the one thing, the one job that I've been doing for ever, um, you know, but I, I have obligations at home. I, I was so jealous talking to so many volunteers at the lakefront today that, you know, they're doing two and three and four jobs and going out on the trail and going to Nome. And I'm like, yeah, I just trail garden Anchorage, you know, and then I go home and I watch the trackers. So it's a lot of fun if you can ever come up and volunteer or come out and volunteer if you're local, uh, do it at least once. It's, it's a lot of fun. You, you do take a lot of pride in the race uh, once you're a part of it. Yeah. And just one other point, sort of from a musher's perspective, uh, tomorrow's ceremonial start is, is about that pomp and circumstance and thanking sponsors and kind of showing off, if you will. Uh, when I say showing off, you will often see, um, you know, people uh, with their sleds decorated, whether it's for sponsors or whatever, or they'll have on special outfits. I remember that one year, uh, Jeff King had his uh, G pole or G pole or whatever, and he was, you know, all mm -hmm. dressed up like yeah. uh, somebody from the Gold Rush, and he had that huge sled out there and and uh, worked his way. Then, of course, we had Hugh Neff with the cat in the hat deal and. You know, other people had, you know, uh, balloons or not balloons, but uh, flags and all sorts of stuff on their sleds. Yep. But in terms of the dogs, 
they are um, Iditarod dogs, but it's almost always not the full team. Uh, you'll, you'll see, you know, teams of 10 or 12 or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. just just yep. because of the power uh, that that they mm-hmm. that they have taking off down there on those paved roads. You won't see, you know, the full team uh, on that uh, on that uh, short run there because it's over so quickly and they want to make it as safe as possible. And then after the ceremonial start, as you mentioned, Tony, the dog trucks are boogieing to pick up their mushers. And then it's it's a day of last preparations. And as we mentioned, it could be times to meet with sponsors or family members or friends or whomever and have those last meals or potentially get that last night of sleep or that last little bit of packing before you head up to Willow the next morning, which we'll talk about tomorrow. But then um, then it is race time. So that is sort of the ceremonial start in a nutshell. And before we get to our question of the day from a fan, we definitely have to do what we do and do our predictions. And I know that you are much more superstitious than I am, and Michelle may be a little superstitious. We'll find out in a second. But I'm going to have you go first, then we'll have Michelle go second, and then I will go third. And I promise, as we're doing this, I will not go second or third every time. So we have a very (laughs) limited roster. What I would like to do, Tony, is I would like to do our top five, and then if you want... Give who you think will be the rookie of the year. And you probably know these guys and gals better than I do, especially the rookies. So if you don't want to give a rookie of the year, you don't have to. That's just <laughs> that's just an extra um, uh, prediction, if you will. So I'm going to have you go first, uh, and Michelle will go second, and I'll go third. Go for it. All right. So my top five, I'm just... I'm not going to go in any particular order. I think uh, I think we've got like 15 solid teams that are going to be buying for a top 10 or top five spot. Uh, like I said, with the smaller roster, it's just it's an incredible group of mushers. Um, I'm going to say Brent Sass, obviously a reigning champion, and he's been doing very well. He just won the Yukon Quest 550. Um, then we're going to, I'm going to say Jesse Holmes, uh, Dan Caduce, uh, so that's three. Uh, we'll go with, I, I said Jesse Holmes already. I'm already not in my right game and I have, I've slept. Um, Jesse Royer, and then I'm going to just go out on a limb and jinx one of my favorite mushers in the entire world, but I'm going to say Ramey Smith for my fifth one, just as a kind of dark horse. And I definitely want to give a shout out to, uh, who I think is going to be a rookie of the year. I think Eddie Burke, if he's not rookie of the year, he's going to fight to be rookie of the year. Um, he's got a really well-managed team. We've seen him do really well. Won the Kinnick, came in the top three of the Cusco 300, which is, was a very competitive race. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm going to say Eddie's probably one of the favorites for rookie of the year. Michelle? Hmm, I find that interesting. <laughs> Um, I'm definitely going a little bit outside of what Tony said. I think that Nick Petit is going to give Brent Sass a run for his money. And I, I think that we might even have a photo finish there. I think Jesse Holmes might outsmart both of them and sweep. 
I definitely uh, am of the belief that's three for me. I think that Jesse Royer is going to uh, possibly pull a Susan Butcher on these boys. Um, rounding out my top five, I got to give it to our, our fellow neighbor, Matt Failer. I, I always root for Matt. Robert <laughs> knows that. He's a good guy, and, and I hope that he, uh, he'll he definitely have a strong finish. I, I think... Um, Rookie of the year, I I definitely give that to Eddie as well, but I don't know. Yeah. I think we might have a ghost out on the trail that could do and pull some surprises out of the out of the trail for people. Who is that? I don't know. I just said it's a ghost. Oh, okay. So wait a second, though. <laughs> you guys didn't let me interject during your banquet talk. Okay, so during the start, I predict. That at least one Iditarider writer will cause a crash. That happens every year for sure. <laughs> whether they're whether they're overzealous in their leaning or pictures <laughs> or or something, uh, it's always a um, an interesting thing to uh, to watch that for sure. So my top five, you know, we always pick who we think are going to win or be in that top five. But I'm going to talk about some folks that, of course, they have the potential to win, but the folks that I'm really going to be watching, I am definitely going to be watching all the folks that both of you guys said, but I'm going to be watching Jason Mackey for sure. I think that's going to be a very interesting story as we see that develop. I'm going to be watching Wade Mars. That's my second one. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be watching the um, uh, uh, father-son uh, team that's out there. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the duo, Greg and Bailey Vitello, I believe is how you say that name. I think that that's going to be very interesting to watch. But I'm going to count that as one person. And then, <laughs> and then lastly, for my fifth, I am going to be watching... Richie Deal, I think that uh, I think that he will do very well as as uh, as uh, one of those top five mushers. And my rookie of the year, I do like Eddie Burke. I think that that's an interesting story. But I really am rooting for Gerhardt, and we've talked a lot about him. Uh, he was one of the folks that uh, had to be airlifted or evacuated or whatever last year. And my buddy Jeremy was up here uh, this past week from Maine, and he's helping us make a documentary about sort of our life and, and what we do with sled dogs. And just recently, he was contacted by Gerhardt and uh, is going to be working with him to do some social media work and website work and stuff. And he has such a cool story. He is from Africa and he's representing uh, the, the, um, the folks there, there that are, you know, in that region. And somehow he is relating sled dogs to uh, things that are happening in, a, in, in Africa, which is, a pretty cool story that I'm sure we will talk about later on. And we we let a little bit of the talk uh, during our conversations when Jeremy was here about a potential I did a rider for Gerhardt. And it's going to be interesting to find out who's in the sled bag. And 
let's just say if one of the two people show up that's supposed to show up for Gerhardt, it will be big news. And and I'm not going to say which because I don't know if they made it or not. But it would be a very... And ladies and gentlemen, he did not even share that with his wife. I did not. It will so be very rude. interesting. It will be. It will be very <laughs> interesting to see if one of those two... Uh, people, I won't even say guy or gal, show up. So those are my uh, top five. And like I said, not necessarily to win, but to definitely watch for sure. So those are our predictions, guys. So you're guys. not even going to let us do over-unders? Because Tony and I had a pretty spot-on choice. I think you did. I think you did. And I think that uh, to win it, I think both of you guys definitely have somebody in that in that top five that will uh, have that potential for sure. So fans that yeah, are listening. I don't, I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to just say, yeah, I was just going to say that I don't think Gerhardt's really going for rookie of the year. He is running dogs out of Mitch Seavey's team. And normally when you're a rookie running Mitch's dogs, the goal is to finish the race, not win the race or come in any top prize money or something like that. And with Gerhardt already not being able to finish last year, I think the goal is just to get that belt buckle. So I don't expect him. If you're looking for a fantasy team member, I'm not sure Gerhardt's your guy if you're looking for the big money. Ooh, but I would, at, ooh, I would suggest stabbing him. You. I would suggest him for... I would suggest him for like just making it to Nome and, and doing very well with as many dogs as possible. But uh, if you're looking for Rookie of the Year, I don't think he's your guy. Well, well with that, I would like to know, Tony, <laughs> I would like to know Robert's Red Lantern. Oh, I, I don't ever Ooh. predict. I don't ever predict Red Lantern because you have no idea on that. It's but, also not going to be a CV team. <laughs> no, it, it, it will not. But I am going to put this out there just to stir up a little bit of controversy here uh, with both of you guys because both of you guys are... Uh, San Francisco 49er fans. Easy now. Uh, both, both. Man, don't even. Hold on. You already ruined our Super Bowl. No, nope. I won't. I will not ruin <laughs> he, this. He owes us both a drink. I, I think, will not Tony. ruin this, but I will say, yeah, at least, I will say that neither one of you expected what's his name, Brock Purdy. Is that his last name? Yes. Neither, <laughs> yeah. neither one of you expected Brock Purdy to do so well and to be the starting quarterback in the uh in the in the final, in the conference final. Neither one of you guys uh-huh. expected that. So I, I will say, though, in defense of the 49ers, that that's how they roll. <laughs> we always have somebody yeah. that will carry us through as far as we can go. So the reason I mentioned... I will also say that I did not expect Robert's jinx to actually break Brock Purdy. Okay, so, so let I'm me explain saying. something to you. Our <laughs> our fantasy football uh, competition, <laughs> he his football team on our fantasy team is called the Jinx. That's right. That is right. <laughs> but but I'm going to finish this. I'm going to finish this. So now I'm arguing with two, two 49er fans. Uh, I... By saying you by by saying that about uh, by saying that about a rookie in the 49ers, uh, since we're sort of talking football, mm-hmm. I think it is potentially possible for a rookie to step up that may or may not be the the top team. As we talked about, Gerhardt running mm-hmm. a CV team or any of those rookies could easily 
as you mentioned, Tony, uh, if if Eddie does not win it, he will fight to win that rookie mm-hmm. of the year. So it just may be somebody that is the dark horse like Brock Purdy. We just don't know. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Let's move on, Michelle and Tony. Well, I was just going to say it certainly <laughs> is not going to be as predictable as it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Yep. So let's get to our, uh, our, our fan questions. And we always like to end the episode. Typically when we did our predictions, we will do our musher of the day. We're going to start that tomorrow. Um, and it'll be a different musher every day. And it's going to be interesting to see where that pans out. But let's take a question from a fan. And that happens to be from our friend Patty. Patty Christensen from uh, California asked, who are mushing fans and where are they listening or tuning in? Where in the world? And her main question is, is how do these people in far-flung areas like Africa or Japan or places that have absolutely nothing to do with mushing, you know, way outside of the box in the mushing world, how in the world did they become mushing fans? And I think that that's a really interesting question because if you are a fan in Korea or Japan or China or Afghanistan or wherever, Italy, places that are just not mushing hotbeds, how did you become a mushing fan? And I know we're going to put that out on social media, but what do you think? Tony, we'll have you go first. Michelle, go second. I'll go third today. <laughs> How do these people get hooked into this uh, in these far-flung areas? What do you think, Tony? Well, you know, in certain countries, Japan actually has mushing over there. Nothing that I'm aware of that's anything like what we see here in Alaska or over in Norway, um, Switzerland, or even in the lower 48, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, Canada, um, but there there are other countries. Um, we we have mushing in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Dryland mushing uh, is a thing as well. So I, I think that some of that just comes from I think dogs, ne- not necessarily sports, but mushing or not mushing, but working dogs are a thing no matter where you are in the world, contrary to popular belief by some activists. Um, but it, it, I think a lot of it has to do with the sort of golden era of dog mushing races here in Alaska. I did did a very, very good job of trying to make this a global thing back in the seventies, eighties and nineties. Um, they prided themselves on adding more and more countries to their little sign. If you go to headquarters in Wasilla, they have an Iditarod Trail sign that they literally have spaces for countries that they can add to this beautiful, gorgeous, carved wooden sign. Um, and they did. They they partnered with Russia. I actually have one of the Iditarod annuals. I think it's the from the second year that they ran, where they actually sent out um, an invitation to mushers from Russia to come and run the Iditarod, that they would help pay for them to come over. They wanted to make this global. They wanted to bring in, they had the Canadians, they had the, they had the lower 48. They were already getting that, but they wanted to get the Russian mushers. And then, you know, we saw 
Norway come over in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, they had this kind of Norwegian team coalition thing that is still going strong, but you had Sheltel Backen and um, Robert Sorley, who of course won Iditarod twice. So I think a lot of that stems from just how Iditarod used to promote itself, how mushing promoted itself some of these races, Bear Grease, Yukon Quest, um, you know, they Susan Butcher winning, the fact that a woman just beat all of these men in one of the toughest sort of sport things that you could do, it really invoked a lot of adventure and imagination in worldwide media. Um, and I think that really helped. A lot of your Iditarod fans are an older generation. Um, and now we have social media, and so that's starting up again with your Twitter. You know, Blair Braverman did an amazing job, and there's a huge new fan base called the Ugly Dogs because of what she was able to do on Twitter right before she even signed up for I Did Um, That we are all, those of us that are doing this podcast, those of us that are blogging, we all kind of wrote in on her coattails in a way because she promoted some of us. I ended up with a bazillion new followers because of Blair. Um, and, and we've cultivated that. And, and there's this really great new grassroots of fandom. So I think social media is the new way to do that. Um, as far as trying to guess how they're getting this, I think it's, it's mainly just international media, you know, still talking about Susan Butcher. You still see articles about Susan Butcher in, in many publications that aren't just over here in Alaska. Michelle? Well, I, I certainly agree with the um, marketing job that has been done over the years. But, you know, I'm the outsider in this little court, triplet thing that we have <laughs> going on here. And I got to say that I didn't know about Iditarod until I met Robert. So, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the race. And I, I'm just from California. And so I, I think that Disney has skin in the game. And I think that the mm -hmm. Olympics in 1980 in Lake Placid had skin in the game where they, they really brought um, dog mushing as a sport to the world. Mm -hmm. That's when it happened more so than Iditarod because in 1980, Iditarod didn't have a, a, a worldwide, uh, global Footprint. reach and I mean newspapers sure but not like they do now with social media and I think that it started mm -hmm. then and you mentioned that older generation is the fandom and that would that would play right into my my reasoning right. here that it really was Disney um and and Lake Placid Olympics I mean Iron Will came out in 1998 or 1994 excuse Four. me yeah and 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 so that was before the Balto cartoon that they produced mm -hmm. and that was before Snow Dogs and Eight Below and and a lot of those dog mushing um uh movies that Disney produced and but it wasn't before you know, the, the romanticized books by Paulson and others that really glorified the story of dog mushing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that it's all of that that is compounded into social media now and the fact that we have such a historic situation in the fact that it is the sport for our state. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. And I got involved with dog mushing because I was involved with working dogs. I was working with Siberians in obedience well before I was working with dogs in mushing. And it, it, both of you guys are, are spot on with, with talking about sort of that glory day of Iditarod and the romanticism of it and the movies and the books and the older generations and all that. Just a couple of years ago, uh, I hosted a show right here on Mushing Radio called The Dog Driver Show with my friend uh, Karosh Parto. He's a champion sprint driver. And we talked to mushers all over the world. We talked to mushers in in Korea, in Australia, in New Zealand, all over Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, everywhere. And a lot of these guys are doing just uh, monosports or very small mushing sports like bike drawing and cane across and, you know, rig racing and all that. And we always asked every one of them how in the world that they got involved with the sport of mushing. And overwhelmingly, they would all say, well, it started with this one Siberian Husky I had, and I got another one and I hooked him up to a sled and off I went. So by hearing that... It, Tri it, trial by error. Sort of, Yeah, it's sort of anecdotal <laughs> evidence, but, but not so much because so many people got involved with the sport by having a, 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 a husky, a working dog. And then of course they, they jumped into it and then their family and friends found out about their sport and it just sort of grew grassroots from there. And I think a lot of those folks are now big time Iditarod fans all over the world because we have such a, a niche sport you know, it's it's much more niche than just about any other big time American sport, and I, I'd like to equate it to you know some uh, Olympic sports that, like Michelle mentioned, that we only cheer for every four years. We think about curling and bobsledding and water polo and all of these, but if you think about it, all of those sports are going on year round, all over the world. And, you know, there's coverage on, on, you know, niche cable channels or online and people are huge fans of them. And I think that's the same with mushing, except we just happen to have a big time race every year. But it's sort of the same the the passionate curling fans or bobsledding fans <laughs> or uh, water polo fans, you know, they know everything about everything in the sport. And I think that that's sort of how mushing is as well. They just, we just come out of the woodwork every March, but I think that they're out there in numbers and in droves uh, every year throughout the world. And I think our podcast is testament to that. We have people listening all over the world all year long. And, and on our other podcast, Dogworks Radio, Every week we do something where we say our top listeners in the cities of, and we list the top five American cities for that week. And it's interesting to see where they're listening to you a dog. add a country. Yep, I'm going to get to that. And then it's interesting to see where they're listening in the country for our dog training show. But then we also take one of the top countries where folks are tuning in to our podcast. And it's all over the map. Just last week, our top country for our dog training podcast was Croatia. And it's interesting why they would listen to two people up in Alaska talking about 
scent games for your dog, why they would be listening in Croatia. So I agree with what both of you guys said, that it's definitely social media. It's definitely podcasting. It's definitely YouTube. It's definitely folks like Blair and Q and the ugly dogs on social media. That's where a lot of this is coming from. But more than anything, I think it's just the the romanticized version of Iditarod through movies and books, but also it's having that dog that gets you involved with the sport, whether it be a Siberian or Alaskan or a Samoyed or American Eskimo or whatever. Those are some of the most popular dog breeds in the world, and I think that's where they get involved as well. So we're going to put this question out on social media after the show. How did you guys get involved with following mushing? We would love to hear about it and uh, let us know. And uh, we will definitely mention those comments on the air. So, guys, we are almost at an hour, well over (laughs) our radio time for sure. I'm going to leave it to Michelle first. Did we miss anything or is there anything else you want to mention before we close? Uh, the only thing I'd like to mention is that we will be at the restart and we are looking forward to that. We've missed it for the last few years, but I'm looking forward to it. And um, in case anybody was wondering, yesterday was Robert's birthday. So happy birthday. Thank you. Big Aww. 52 years old. I am over <laughs> a half of a century, but as... Um, What's her name? Marjorie Stoneman Douglas says, true life doesn't start till after your 50s. So uh, I guess uh, this is when life begins. So we'll see. Tony, anything we missed or you want to mention before we go? Well, then I have 12 years before my life starts. There you go. (laughs) I will also mention that I just, I don't want, I don't want like the the powers that be in Hollywood because, you know, I'm, so sure that they listened to us, but um, I just want to say that Balto was actually DreamWorks, not Disney. I Ooh. hate to be that person that goes actually, but oh, I gosh. I had a long talk. I had a long talk with uh, John Van Zyl in Nome a few years ago, and he has some very strong feelings about that movie because he actually got to meet with Steven Spielberg, who was the producer, and they were talking about the history of Balto and. After, you know, he presented everything he knew about Balto and Togo and the theorem run, Spielberg was like, that's great, but my story's better. And that's why we have the very inaccurate animated version of the theorem run. Well, so that's you, just my little added for the night. You can you, you <laughs> cannot argue with either one of them. I mean, uh, John Van Zyl, huge. Right? Yeah, huge. Could I you wrong. imagine? I know. Uh, you cannot argue with John Van Zyl, but... Hasn't he been a guest on the show? No, he has not. Uh, But you definitely cannot argue (laughs) with Steven Spielberg, one of the greatest movie makers of all time. Very much so. So I will take the correction, but I will give the caveat. (laughs) All I used to do was pop the movie in to get my kids to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. All right, guys. It was a good good show. When I was a kid, I loved it. Yes. We are done for today. It, it uh, starts for real tomorrow for all of the mushers out there. The ceremonial starts and then the next day with, with, the, uh, with the restart. And remember, we will be here every night through the banquet. So well over the next two weeks or so, every night, uh, we will try to get an episode up around 8.30-ish Alaska time, which is right around midnight Eastern time. 
But do yourself a favor, guys. Hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening. And then we don't have to tell you what time we're going to air because when it drops, it's going to magically appear on your cell phone <laughs> right there on that listening app. You don't have to hit refresh or go onto the internet and find out when in the world are Robert, Tony, and Michelle going to release that episode. It's going to fall right into your podcast player. So check it out. Tell your family and friends how you're listening, even if they do live in a country that does not have mushing, maybe they will become a fan too. So we will see you guys tomorrow night. I am Robert on behalf of Michelle and Tony. We will see you guys next time. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.